heart stilled. Let's open our eyes now and let's read this beautiful prayer together. Would you read it with me? Oh God, all people are your beloved across races, nationalities, religions, sexual orientations, and all the ways we are distinctive from one another. We are all manifestations of your image. We are bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality and tied to a single garment of destiny. You call us into your unending work of justice, peace, and love. Let us know your presence among us now. Let us delight in our diversity that offers glimpses of the mosaic of your beauty. Strengthen us with your steadfast love and transform our despairing fatigue into hope-filled action under the shadow of your wings in this hour. May we find rest and strength, renewal and hope. We ask this, inspired by the example of your disciple, Martin Luther King Jr., and in Jesus' name, and God's people said, reading tonight is from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he didn't answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was only sent, or rather, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. So um, I want Stan Jr. to come, my son to come, and make this introduction of Lee, and I'll, I'll, he's going to read a little bit of a biography. Probably a year and a half ago, um, Stan Jr. was headed out the door, and I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to eat dinner with Lee. I said, Lee Anglin? He said, yeah. He said, we go to dinner all the time. I said, well, nobody told me. And come to find out, Lee, who's been in the pastorate, knows what it is to be a pastor and knows what it is to have pastor's kids. And there's so many advantages and then there are disadvantages, just like all of you with your vocation. And whatever the disadvantages, uh, Lee had a heart for Stan Jr. And come to find out he had been taking my kid and still every few weeks or so I asked Stan where he's going he said Lee and I are meeting at Moe's barbecue and Lee's been an important person Lee and Carol have been incredibly important people and that's an understatement in our lives and all of our lives so this church is absolutely indebted to Lee and Carol Anglin what precious precious people they have been to us so we wanted you to know a little bit about him. You know that this guy's been a pastor for a long time, but there are some interesting facts. Stan Jr., would you mind reading his biography? A little bit of a biography. I, uh, I feel very lucky to be able to introduce one of my best friends in this church uh, to speak, and a really wonderful man. 
named Lee Anglin, who's meant a lot to me in my life over the past couple years, and I'd love to tell you a little bit about him. Lee grew up in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, focused on sports and scouting. His extended family encouraged him toward becoming a doctor, and a baseball scholarship at Wake Forest seemed to push him that direction. In 1955, at the end of his junior year at Wake Forest, Lee was the third baseman on the College World Series championship team. Later that summer, a call to pastoral ministry seemingly came from out of the blue. And it changed the direction of Lee's life. With a baseball career behind him and a seminary ahead of him, he served a rural Southern Baptist church for the next three years. And after graduating from Southeastern Seminary, he accepted a pastorate at an American Baptist church in upstate New York, followed by an eight-year tenure at another church in western New York. Both of those churches were restarts. Later, he pastored churches in Houston, Texas, and Greeley, Colorado. Lee and Carol then moved eastward to plant two new churches, one in Ohio and one in Indiana. Lee retired from pastoral ministry in 1999 when the Anglins moved to Montana, where Lee became a trout fishing guide and a wildlife guide in Yellowstone National Park. In 2013, they moved to Tennessee to be closer to children and grandchildren and became active members of Grace Point. And we have been so lucky ever since. So, the question is, what was his problem? What was Jesus' problem? Did he have a hang-up of sorts about women? Or maybe this particular woman? Do you see at all what I see here? How did you feel when our brother read the text aloud? Does it present rather unusual teaching to you? Would it be better to skip this text altogether and hope no immature sister or brother reads it and then asks unanswerable questions? Oh, wait, we, we are the immature brothers and sisters uh, still. What is the story saying? Is it okay if I say what I think is here? How is this coming, by the way, to you? Is, can you hear it? Okay. Is it too loud? Well, I'll try harder. By the way, I think this text looks to me like a great Midrash text. When I first read it years ago, it bounced around in my head like a bong. Does it sound harsh, if not mean, uh, to you? To me, the whole first part sounds unkind. For starters, Jesus wouldn't even speak to the woman. She'd come begging him to help her sick daughter, no less. 
but he denied he had anything to do with her kind. Finally, he likened her to a dog. Is this how you read it? But after his rejection came the sheer grandeur of her faith, which seemed instantly, somehow, it seemed instantly to change something inside Jesus. Apparently, he gave in at least and responded after all. What happened? It seems he pushed her away and put her down. That's how I felt when I read it over and over. Well, this woman was a, a Canaanite. <laughs> At that time, it was, as someone important said, it was a huge question. For the disciples and apparently Jesus, she was one of them. She, she was one of the great unwashed. She was tainted. Outsider was too good a name for her. Jews would never welcome this person. She was not to be accepted. She was from the sticks, a hill country woman, Canaanitish, mixed breed, Syrian woman. Syrians, of course, worshiped strange gods. They were unclean right down to their souls, these Syrians. She was a Gentile, and as James Weldon Johnson said, them's the worst kind of all. Gentile was the Jewish name for everyone who wasn't a Jew. They didn't come any worse than this person. Earlier, in Matthew 10, Jesus warned his... In, in Matthew 10, Jesus warned his special group to steer clear of Gentiles, saying his disciples were sent exclusively to the lost sheep of Israel. But there was a catch to it all. The lost sheep of Israel were not really chasing each other to get to Jesus. His own people. His own people were not really interested. They wanted him. They wanted to be around him. They wanted, they hung around him, but really they didn't follow, not really. People in his hometown, Nazareth, his friends and his family uh, doubted his authority and took offense at his teaching. Even his cousin, John the Baptizer, was confused about him for a while. Jesus wasn't behaving like any, any Messiah John had grown up expecting. In short, things weren't going well, not at all as planned. It was always busy for him. He, he was always in a crowd. There were always so many people hanging around, pushing in. And he tried sometimes to get away from it all, and the crowds followed him. And in the late afternoon, one afternoon, they were hungry with no food. A good restaurant was nowhere to be found. And Jesus, with five loaves and two fishes, fed them, thousands of them, men, as well as the women. And immediately, while at sea, a violent storm crashed on top of them, and Peter, without thinking, ran out of the boat to go to Jesus, but he didn't make it. Everywhere he turned, Jesus found human needs piled up and up and 
and up. Broken, hurting people wanted him for what he could do for them or do to them or do for them in miraculous ways, but they remained blind to him. Who he was. Really, they didn't seem to care who he was. In Panera's uh, four or five weeks ago, I asked a gentleman if I could sit with him. It was a busy place. We introduced ourselves and, and, and we're soon talking about church, if you can imagine that. He said his church was fantastic. He loved it. I asked how long he had attended this wonderful church and he said about three months and he said adding that he'd attended six churches in 2017 and at last he'd found the one who met his needs, all of his needs, and fed him full. Friends, uh, would you forgive an elderly skeptic? I understand searching and I understand changing when necessary. My guess is that my new Panera friend will search again and maybe again, in, in many instances, lots of folk in our nature, culture, in our communities are way overfed and way underinvested. Came this Canaanite woman crying, heal my daughter, just one more of the Seekers who want something out of him, something from him, a part of him, except this woman, this Canaanitish Syrian woman, called him by name. She said, Lord, son of David. Now, it may not catch our breath now. It caught his breath then. Lord, son of David was the title reserved for whom? Whom? Yeah, somebody said it, Messiah. It was Messiah. Uh, and he didn't answer her a mumbling word. No, he drew a line in the sand. Just one more time. Enough was enough. He would expand his reach no further. The doctor was out. Gone out of business was nailed to the door. He would not expend his energy on a Gentile woman while his own people were chaffing their hearts and starving for love. I was, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he said, and that was supposed to be that, but the woman wouldn't stay on her side of the line in the sand. She stepped over it, knelt in front of him and said, Lord, help. She would not be dismissed. She'd got a foot inside the door before he could slam it in her face. She showed no sign of, she'd take no for an answer. He told her no in no uncertain terms. Is that how you read it? That's my question. He'd said point blank she wasn't his kind, but she refused to get the message. 
He said it again, louder and clearer this time. You don't throw the children's bread to the dogs. Frankly, when I first read this, I couldn't believe it. I certainly didn't get it. I thought Jesus was kind, always, always kind, always patient, always generous to a fault. But here and in other texts, I'd wondered, was Jesus so much part of his culture that what he said to her was the only thing he could have said? Or maybe he's so discouraged and, and just beaten up and weary with it all. And everywhere he turned, someone else wanted a piece of him. But at the same time, no, wanted, no one wanted what he most wanted to give himself. Who he was, was the one he wanted to give. And it appeared, and it appeared they only wanted pieces of him. Does this happen to you, Pastor? All the time, doesn't it? We're surrounded by appetites. That's the way it was then, that's the way it is now. Maybe you don't get hammered. I hope you don't, but uh, for six decades, I've been involved in one way or another in our nation's political goings-on, making financial contributions, phoning senators and, and representatives, writing notes to Democrats and Republican politicians, marching and protesting and going to meetings and providing meetings and sending handwritten letters and emails to presidents. Today, so far, before we left home, I had received 43 emails from political persons or groups who don't want me. They want parts, pieces of Carol and me. We have kindness in our hearts, but we're not the bank. We are forced to decide what we can and cannot do for them Everything we have is not enough to feed or help the hungry world, but we but they don't want what, what they don't want that. They want what we can send them for the next campaign. It appears that's the way it is. And Carol and I draw the line and stay flexible. We want to stay flexible. We draw it around our church and our friends and our family and three or four of our special concerns, such as the Southern Poverty Law Center. Did Jesus lose his temper? Is that what happened? Did he have personal limits like us? Did he heal everybody or feed all the hungry? Could he have? Many times I found myself saying to myself something like, it's not fair to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. It sounds harsh, I know. I, I don't mean to be ugly, but what's a person to do? Jesus and the woman were playing. It looked like to me they were playing who blinks first. 
He all but clapped in her face, all but slapped her, but she didn't blink. He all but called her a dog. Yet even the dogs, she said, get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And dear ones, I think, how about you, that something snapped then and there in Jesus. Something inside him shifted. Something was rearranged and changed forever. We can still hear it in his voice. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Her daughter was healed instantly is what it says. And the question is, do you see and believe Jesus grew up? For years I'd wondered, but, but isn't this what we mean by incarnation? We grow up. God became flesh and, and bone and blood and heart and limbs fingers and toes and organs and, and brain. I'm asking, isn't God at least incarnate right now? I don't think I could relate to Jesus, maybe even to God, if I didn't believe he grew up and grew inside and became wiser as he matured. Isn't that what is happening to you? His humanity has everything to do with me. I know I have the spirit of Christ within me, but fundamentally I'm a human being. I wish I could say this contagiously. Church, are we the living body of Jesus the Christ? Are we the living body of Jesus the Christ? Would, would someone nod just a little? Do living things change? If they don't change, what are they? Are we not now God's flesh? Are we continuing to live him, not merely for Christ, but living him every day of the year to be at least some of the glowing candles of God's great light here and now or wherever we are? If not, it's possible we're thinking way too little of who God is making us. Jesus grew up and grew deep and grew increasingly large in spirit. That's how you, we are one with him. We're whistling the same tune. It's just that we get out of tune quite a bit. One body, that's what we are, isn't it? Are we, he grew as we grow. He changed as we changed, not only physically, but in mind and wisdom and companion and, and soul. If Jesus were from birth to death, perfect, fully mature, the same male person all his life, always full to the top of God's wisdom and, 
love, then what on earth does he have to do with me or you? His spirit is in us, but we're still worlds different from him. I'm, I, I'm at times badly behaved. I, I, I'm, for me, for me, I'm still trending towards self, still exhibiting ugly attitudes. I, I cannot yet meet him halfway. He is complete. He is whole. He is, he is full. But not really according to, the Paul, to Paul the apostle, for if we are not complete, he's not complete. We're that together. We're that one. We, a community of disciples, are not yet mature, but hallelujah, we're on our way. I just want to jump up and down. We're on our way. We're inseparably connected to God. That's the most exciting news I could ever think about. We're connected to God. Heaven is now. Isn't that what the meaning of heaven is? We're connected to God. And all our ugly attitudes are, are I pray, disappearing slowly for sure, but disappearing. He is complete, but not really. The line Jesus drew between himself and the woman vanished. It was there, then it wasn't. Do you see? The limits he placed on himself disappeared and we can almost hear the great wheel of history turning as Jesus came to, to understand the newness about himself, the fullness of himself that he was more than he thought. Can you believe that? That he was more, that he was enough, that God and he were enough, that he and God and the community around them were enough. The line that Jesus drew just vanished. And so he was no longer the Jewish Messiah. He was called exclusively to the world. The old boundaries could not hold, contain the new vision, could not hold him now. He erased the previously drawn circle in the sand and redrew it new and large, and it, it extended all the way. No more in hanging on to the same notions about the way things ought to be. Her faith opened his arms wider and wider until there was no, there was room inside them for the whole world. And finally, he allowed them to be nailed open at the cross. That's how it goes. God calls us to push back and out our personal and church boundaries, embracing them all, or as, large as largely as we can, saying no to the false notion that there's not enough of us to go around. We're just a small crowd. But there's enough. God's singular voice always reminds us there is enough of God and of us to go around. 
We can spend it all of ourselves and there still be enough. We can still give more of ourselves and there will be more. How this applies to you, I can tell you some of what it means to me. Because he was like me, I can be like him. That's it. That was exactly what it means to me. I don't believe Jesus was full grown at birth. He, like I, was an infant, then a five-year-old, then a teen, and then a 20-year-old, and a 30-year-old. He didn't make it to 83. I have, and I think I know why. Ask me later. Because I know he was like I am. I can be and do a lot better until I pass. If my arms, my heart, and my mind are open, I can be more truly real within myself and with you and with others. More like him is my heart's longing, at least some of the time. If he were some kind of human mirage, if his feet were always about two inches off the ground, I say, if he were a spiritual hologram, what can he possibly have to do with me? Or you? Jesus, a God-man, became fully, abundantly obedient to God as a man. Can you hear that? Whom he called Father. So I want to learn how never to be stingy. I, I, I want to learn, I want to grow and change to be like him, to learn how to care and be welcoming and kind to every person I meet. I, do I worry some about not being willing to give enough of myself for others? Sure. I know I'm not willing as God is willing, but I, we, can still love self and each other and others because now I know God loves me. That's about my theology. Now I know God loves me and loves you and loves them. We don't love perfectly, not yet. Thank God we're learning. Is this what salvation is? So now when I hear about things like room in the inn, about someone who's looking for a person who will listen, now when I hear about misogyny, about women and men in jail. I may want to draw the line. I may want to say, I'm way too old. Look at me. I can't walk steady because of my neuropathic feet. Or I may want let someone to say, let someone stronger and younger do it because there's just not enough of me left to go around. I may try to draw the line doesn't work because while I cannot serve anyone everyone I can serve you I can serve anyone else I can serve sometimes 
I may want to draw the line, but the difference is now that more often, not always yet, but more often, the lines I once drew are broken. There's less pulling away from people in me, looking in faces eye to eye is, is more how I do it now. Not as much keeping a tight rein on my feelings uh, or protecting myself in every situation. I encourage you, step out. Step out. Look a Canaanite in the eye. Knock on a neighbor door. Uh, ask an outsider what her life is like. If you get scared, and you probably will, and if you get angry or mad, you may. But step over the lines anyway. Because, because we want to, yes, but not really because we ought to or because we have to and not... I, I, after all is said and done, not even because we want to, but because now we know it is God's own self who waits on the other side. Right now, I'm... I'm ready to quit. There are many times in my life when I say to myself during a sermon, you know, I just ought to quit. This is rotten. But this is not rotten, what I'm saying to you. It's, 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 it's wonderful. If you can hear. If you have ears to hear. If your heart is the kind of heart that wants to hear. What do you think about this passage? Let's pray. Lord, I'm honestly concerned that there's been too much of me in this than God and God's Christ. But I know that your people are focused right now. I pray that. I know that we are focused now and that our hearts are yielding to you. That we want you to be predominant in our lives. And I pray that that will be so first for me and then for these, my brothers and sisters, and especially for those whom I don't even know yet. Bless us, we pray, in the name of Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Messages are especially palatable. Messages are especially palatable and enjoyable when the person sharing them actually lives them. And Lee Anglin, for the last 45 years of life and ministry, 
has been crossing lines, eradicating lines, and making every person he meets feel like they are the beloved. Can you say amen? Let's thank him one more time.